Turn your Bibles, if you will, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. As I was getting my ribbon in my spot there, as we were singing, I did it to 1 Peter. No, don't turn to 1 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we'll stop there. How many people know what special religious day is to be celebrated this coming Thursday, April, or May 26th? It's Ascension Day. It's 40 days after Easter, the day when Jesus ascended into heaven. And in um, heaven, what does Jesus do? He sits on the right hand of God. He makes intercession for us. To God, we pray in Jesus' name, and he takes our requests to God. Jesus advocates for believers. Jesus is the righteous covering for our sin before a holy God. Jesus is preparing a place for us and will come again and take us unto himself so that we will be with Jesus. Remember the words of the angels, of the angel in Acts? When it says that Jesus, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming again. Joy for the saved, judgment for the wicked. That is the message of this passage here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Are you excited for Jesus' return? When we went to, uh, we're going to visit Ezra um, and uh, Sophie and our, our daughter and her husband out in Manitoba, we knew that Ezra was excited. When we would Skype them a few weeks before we were going and we announced, we're coming to see you soon, his reply, tomorrow? <laughs> Is that our reply 
when we see this, that Jesus is coming again, today, tomorrow, let it be soon. Peter addresses his, this letter here to those he calls beloved. This is a term of endearment. Who are those that are beloved? Just summarizing from chapter 1 of 2 Peter, the beloved are those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ by the righteousness of God our Savior in Jesus Christ. They've escaped from the corruption of the world resulting from sinful desire. They're making every effort to supplement their faith with virtuous living, growing in their knowledge of God's will. Self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brother affection and love. They desire to be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are the ones that Peter calls beloved. However, the word beloved here that Peter uses in chapter 3 is a far contrast from what Peter says about the false teachers in chapter 2. He has some blunt comments for the false teachers. He calls them bold, willful blasphemers, irrational animals, accursed children, dogs, and sows. What was the false teaching that created such an emotional response from Peter in chapter 2? Peter describes their greed. They exploit victims with false words, secretly bringing in destructive heresies, following their sensualities. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They were introducing sexual immorality into the church, and they called it acceptable. Peter here is warning the church about false teachers in chapter 2, and in chapter 3, he begins to encourage believers. Peter was faithful to Jesus. Remember in John, after Jesus arose, he asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter was faithful in feeding the sheep, as he was doing here as he's writing this epistle. Peter is stirring up the mind of sincere believers. The word sincere here is a contrast to the counterfeit false prophets mentioned in chapter 2. Peter reminds the believers of the teaching they've already heard. Peter wants them to move away their thoughts from the scoffing world toward the joy of the hope of eternity in heaven with Jesus. In Romans 12, 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, thus says the Lord. This is such an encouragement to the believers, and so we read on in uh, chapter 3 here what's going to happen to these scoffers. Paul used the word remind extensively in chapter 1 of this book, and now he uses it again. In verse 3, Peter encourages the beloved believers by reminding them there will be scoffers in the last days. 
When are the last days? Well, the last days started with Jesus' ministry. And the last days are continuing on even to right now until Jesus returns. The scoffers are unbelievers. They were, in chapter 2, they were within the church. They have knowledge of the Bible. But it doesn't mean that they believe everything that they read in the Bible. Only what is convenient to them. Their knowledge is not a knowledge that has led to faith in Christ. Here in chapter 3, following the context of this epistle, the scoffers are probably the same false teachers of chapter 2. Why did Peter say these scoffers would mock believers in the last days? Because believers are salt and light. I can imagine believers telling these false teachers that if they continue in their sin of sensuality, of illicit sexual behavior, that they're going to be judged. Believers that practice, another reason is that believers that practice intimacy only in the context of marriage between one man and one woman, as God designed genetically at birth, it exposes the false teachers in their sin. In the minds of mockers, the best defense is a good offense. If they ridicule believers, the weak may be strayed by the mockers' crafty reasoning. Mockers are looking to see their illicit behavior become mainstream, even within the church. They promote that God is a God of love and not a God that would judge them for their sin. Scoffers don't want to stop their sinful practices. They want to continue un unimpeded in their own sinful desires. They hate the thought of God as a righteous judge and hate believers that would live a life pleasing to God, causing scoffers to feel the guilt of their weight of sin. This ridicule toward believers is outright persecution and it even occurs within so-called biblical churches. And so they mock. They say, where is this Jesus who is coming back to judge me? They mock saying that true believers have been misled and hoodwinked about the return of Jesus. Unfortunately, religion has even given scoffers some fuel for their fire. Cults and even some churches, some uh, church organizations have tried to calculate and, specific, and set specific dates for Jesus' second coming. When the dates are wrong, the scoffers mock. The scoffers in verse 4 say, where's the promise of his coming? Or basically, where is your Jesus? Has he broken his promise to return? The mockers claim ever since the patriarchs or the fathers died, the world is moving along the same way it always has since creation. So Peter provides three areas of proof that the mockers are wrong in their assertion that Jesus will not return as judge. The first proof of the coming day of the Lord is the prophetic word of God. See verse 2 there. The predictions of the holy prophets. The commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
Peter here is encouraging believers that the coming promise of the second, or the promise of the second coming of Jesus is real, that the Lord will return just as he promised. The Messiah will return at the day of the Lord to deliver the saints and execute judgment on evildoers. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the holy prophets, through Isaiah, right through to Malachi, spoke of Jesus' second coming. Note that Jesus, or note that Peter calls them holy prophets, separated unto God, in contrast with the false prophets of chapter 2. An example of one of the holy prophets is found in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. It says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The apostles expanded on what the holy prophet said in Jesus' teaching about his second coming, and it was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage us, to exhort us as to how we should live our lives in light of this blessed hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. God's prophetic word in scripture is trustworthy. The Old Testament prophets are consistent with the apostles in the New Testament. Scripture always supports scripture and scripture never contradicts scripture. To believe what they believe, the mockers must dismiss extensive portions of the Old and New Testament that deal with God's judgment in the last days for false teachers. The second proof of the coming day of the Lord is God's power. Look at verse 5. Remember the scoffers in chapter 2 were the false teachers. The scoffers must deliberately overlook God's powerful work in creation. In Genesis 1, on the second day of creation, God separated the waters into a vapor canopy and then made the uh, underneath the rivers, the lakes, the seas. On the third day of creation, God separated the dry land from the waters and called it earth. The waters that were gathered together were called seas. The point that the scoffers deliberately overlook is this. If God, if through God's power he created the earth by his word, would he also not have that same power to destroy the earth by his word? Of course he would. And then in verse 6, 
the scoffers, the false teachers, would also have to conveniently overlook God's power in judging mankind by sending a worldwide flood. Except for Noah and his family, all mankind were blotted out. God made an end to all flesh. God was not silent, as the scoffers presumed. Mankind was deluged by water and perished. Wouldn't God be able to destroy mankind again if he chose? Of course he would. God promised that he would not destroy the earth again by water. Sadly, God's symbol for this promise has been hijacked by those in their pride who do not believe in God's design for marriage. Note in verse 7 a phrase that is important, and I almost missed it there because it's kind of hidden. The heavens and earth are currently being kept. This is also by God's power. God is still in sovereign control of all that happens on the earth. God is keeping the world until the day of judgment and the day of destruction for the ungodly. Here when it says destruction, it does not mean that they're going to be wiped out. It doesn't mean that they're going to no longer exist. It means that they are destined for eternity in hell. Verse 7 also tells us how God will destroy the world in a different way in the last day. Remember, he promised he would never destroy it again by flood. This time, it is going to be destroyed by fire. The earth will not be destroyed by mankind overheating it. The earth is not going to be destroyed by nuclear war. God will deliver fire by his word. Do we really believe that Jesus is coming again? Do I remember this promise every morning as I wake up excited about the possibility of seeing Jesus? Do I live each day like I believe that Jesus could return at any time? The prospect of seeing Jesus should not be just the truth that I anticipate on my sickbed. Jesus' return should be my, my primary focus as I work, as I rest, as I live my life, especially during those times when the world, the flesh, and Satan are enticing me to sin. The prospect of Christ's return should cause me to regularly confess my sin and seek forgiveness. The third proof of the coming day of the Lord is God's patience. It should be clear to us that our view of time is far different than what God's view of time is. Each of us are a mere speck on the timetable of God. Verse 8 seems to have Psalm 90, verse 4, in mind. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Once again in verse 8, Peter uses the word beloved and tells us not to overlook that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In this context, the thousand years does not refer to the millennium. It is not to be used in some secret calculation to try to predict a date of when Jesus is coming back. It tells us to keep in mind that God has already set a specific date for the day of the Lord. We just don't know what it is. 
It will come. It has not happened yet. And we should trust God's timetable in the same way as Jesus' first advent when he came in the fullness of time. Verse 9 here is such a good verse to end on. It's such an encouraging verse. The Lord is slow to fulfill his promise. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our God is trustworthy. He keeps his word. God is not delayed. God is not slow. He's not late. God has not forgotten his promise. God is being patient. God is waiting for us to fulfill the Great Commission or to go into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He's waiting for us to reach the elect, those he has chosen. We hasten the day of the Lord by faithfully making disciples of every people, tongue, and nation. When it says that God is patient or long-suffering towards you or us, it refers to the original recipients of Peter's letter, the beloved. You also means those of us who have come to faith in Christ through the repentance of sin. Of God's patience, I'm reminded of this verse in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In this verse, we learn about God's will. God, is, uh, God, in his great mercy, does not wish that any should perish. And this is a missionary verse. It is God's will that Christian churches everywhere faithfully proclaim God's word. And so from this portion in 2 Peter chapter 3, we come with a few um, applications to keep in mind. First of all, we are called to be salt and light, to call out sin as taught in Scripture without glossing it over. Because if we don't know within ourselves that we're sinners and we don't um, tell others of the need for a Savior, how are they going to know of the need? Don't be victimized by the enticing words of false teachers. Know your scriptures well. Read your scriptures daily so that when you hear something wrong, you'll know it's wrong because it's not according to the holy prophets, not according to Jesus' words, not according to the apostles. Call unbelievers to have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ to repent and turn away from their sin. Remember Peter's teaching here of the sureness of Jesus returning to rescue the believers and to execute the wicked. Through Peter's, through the prophetic word of God mentioned here, through God's power and God's patience for all of us. 
remain steadfast in persecution as we face scoffers. There are scoffers and there will be scoffers. Pray even for their salvation. Be patient and long-suffering with scoffers, leaving God to judge. God is an example for us in how to be patient, and we need to be patient also. Faithfully demonstrate to the world what biblical marriage looks like. Another reason is because it points to the relationship between Christ and the church. And the last point I've written here, remain excited about the glorious return of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are a faithful God, a God who can be trusted. And Lord, we know that you have set a time when you're coming back for us. And Lord, we are excited to see you. We are excited to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, we would be faithful to you. That we would live a life consistent to your word. That we would seek to save, to have you save the lost. That we would preach the gospel to everyone. To our Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen the marriages within our church because it's an example of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Lord, we pray that we would be patient and long-suffering as we wait for your blessed return. And Lord, we, may we ever remain excited, anticipating, and living our lives in the light of you coming back, of our blessed hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.